You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Proces zimy našeho vypravování udeřili v prosinci mrazy tak vášnivé, jako bylo tehdejší křesťanstvo. Za takových dní je věru lépe hřadovat někde u ohně a vzpomínat příběhů ze starých časů. Bláznivin se rozsévá na zdarbu. Vem si, co chceš, ale Markeťa, neubližuj, Mikoláši! Nebuď hovado, Mikoláši. Je zaslíbena Bohu. Dobrotivý Bůh, věrš ti svojím příkladem, se rád s námi o ní rozdělí. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back with us this week is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hi. September 2018 continues with a discussion of Frantisek Vlasil's Marketa Lazarova, based on the book by, why do I do this to myself? Based on the book by Vladislav Vanchura. The film is an epic tale of fighting tribes in the 13th century in the area that would become Czechoslovakia. The film is named after the maiden Marketa Lazarova, who befalls one of the many brigands in the sweeping, beautiful black-and-white film. This is one of those films that is difficult to spoil, and if anything, it might benefit to listen to our discussion before watching the film. We may shed some light on what's going on in the film, or we might confuse you completely. I'm not sure. No promises. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw Marketa Lazarova, and what did you think? 
every time I do one of these Czech Timber episodes, it's the same thing. I should just record it on a little thing. But again, about four or five years ago, when I started to discover Czech film, and it was second run DVD again. They did it on a very, very cheap DVD version. And I used to just grab all their releases. They used to do them in our independent record shop and they were like about five pound each. So I would just buy them because I like the covers. And I'd be like, oh, that looks interesting. So I found a lot of films through there like Valerie the Cremator and this one, which I wasn't expecting because the other Czech films I'd seen before that were more kind of avant-garde and fun. So, yeah, blew me away, obviously, but totally took me out of my comfort zone at the same time, because it's it's quite an experience. How about you, Sam? I don't remember exactly the first time I saw it, but it must have also been about four or five years ago. And I did this thing for a while where I would just sort of make lists of different types of cinema I was unfamiliar with and sort of pick things at random when I wanted to watch something new that I had no idea what it was. And I found a bootleg of this with slightly off subtitles, which I didn't realize at the time until I bought and watched the Criterion version later. But I was so blown away. Like, I I didn't understand what I was watching or, like, sort of like Kat was saying, I expected it to be maybe a little something more surreal or avant-garde. I think I watched it not too long after I watched Sweet Movie for the first time. So I think I was expecting something sort of like that and was just blown away. I watched this for the show. This has been one of those movies that has just been hanging out. Um, I think I've owned it on DVD-R for a long, long time, finally upgraded. I hadn't watched the, probably it was the version that you're talking about, Sam, and then I ended up just buying the Criterion just to watch that. And I'll tell you, the first time I watched this movie, I had no fucking idea what was going on. <laughs> I was completely You're not lost. You're not alone. It's one of those films. I think I've watched it, I don't know, five or six times now. And I finally feel like I'm just about getting to grips with it. But there's still, it's it's just one of those films. But I think that's the great thing about it. It rewards you every time you go back to it. And it almost doesn't matter that you don't. Re- so I don't think I fully understood what the plot was supposed to be until I read the book recently. But it, it almost doesn't matter at all that you don't quite get some of the subplots or some of some of who the characters are because it's just so amazing. Yeah, visually this knocked me on my ass. And then when I rewatched it after reading most of the book, I finally started to get a little bit more of a beat on it. And I will fully admit that I do not know everything that's going on in here, but I'm starting to get to that point where I feel like I kind of know what's going on. The first time I watched it, I was like, okay, I can kind of get that there's two warring clans there's the 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 one that uh is run by lazar the one that's run by kozik and then there's the captain and so we've got these three groups going on and then you add in christian into the mix who's this guy from saxony which is basically like germany and i will admit that so 
you know, you're there and you're reading the subtitles and not necessarily paying attention to the voices that are saying the subtitles. I don't know if you guys are ever like this, but I'm like that. And then finally, last time I watched it, I realized, oh, they're speaking German <laughs> rather than everyone speaking Czech. So then that added a whole other thing to it as far as like, oh, there's two different groups going on here as far as the language goes. So I felt really stupid about that. It's not the type of movie where you watch it once and you don't need to watch it again. I really struggle. I struggle with the book. I'll admit that. But I've got ADHD, so I struggle with big ensemble um, frameworks anyway. And I don't think the that's even worse in the film because people are kind of introduced, but not introduced. Like like Mike said, you know, Christian just appears and then you realize he's not actually Czech and it's all that and so I did I did find it quite difficult the first time few times I watched it to kind of track keep track of who everybody was and what their role was but I think overall it doesn't matter because it's more of a, a mood piece it's more it's less about character and more about feelings if that that's how I take it anyway more about um atmosphere and emotion and i think the little intricate details of the plot who's falling out with who and and all that i i don't think it really matters if you completely understand it all anyone who's listening to the first like 10 minutes of this episode is not going to be sold on this because we're like (laughs) who knows what's happening (laughs) but no i i think you're right and i think anytime somebody writes about this film they highlight the fact that it's really more of a poem than a narrative, like like a linear narrative film. And I think people definitely say the same thing about his writing is that it, it just has this quality where the language is almost more important than the narrative beats per se. Yeah. I saw witch hammer before I saw this. So I was expecting another witch hammer and witch hammer is very very um solidly structured that you have to understand everybody's role in the plot to understand what happens and why and it is quite formal in that respect so i was expecting another witch hammer and then i got marketa lazarova and i was just like what the fuck this like you said this doesn't sound like an endorsement but it was a it was a wonderful what the fuck it was a, oh, I, I need to watch this again and again and again. What the fuck? It reminded me of like the color of pomegranates where you're like, I don't really know what's happening here, but I'm really intrigued by the visuals and I want to know more and I want to experience this as much as I possibly can. I think you said something about hard to be a god and in your notes. And it really, when I saw that, it reminded me of Marquetta because I mean, that is way more sort of surreal and disjointed, but just this feeling of, you don't know anything about these characters, especially Marquetta and especially, uh, Mikolash, but you come to, at least I did come to really care about them. And it's such a weird dichotomy of, you know, you learn more about them if you read the book, but I think the film's sort of vague way of describing them is almost more powerful. Yeah, and for a movie called Marqueta Lazarova, I mean, we don't see her very much until way into the proceedings. 
uh, we we get some glimpses of her, and then even when she's kind of more formally introduced, she's still kind of a cipher for a lot of the film. It takes a long time for us to really get to know her at all, and it really isn't until the end of the film until she you know kind of stands on her own. I love that part though, and the way that her romance with Mikolash sort of develops peripherally you don't see it happening but she's there in the background and so you get to know her just through these sort of through this emotional sense and through uh watching her watching other things unfold she's not formally presented and so when it does get to the last part of the story and you see her you know she's the hope at the end of the story as she she walks away i think it makes it more powerful than if it had been a more formal structure because it's it's very emotion based and i think i agree with sam that i think that's why you care because you kind of struggle with these people there's there's not always a lot of dialogue and so you get grunting and fighting and just barbarity and you feel you know you really feel how this story how the people experience it so it's it's like a feeling story which i love one of the things I think that made me become so obsessed with it is once you start to learn more about kind of Czech culture and Czech history, you can start to see it as a kind of political protest film. But even if you don't know any of that subtext, it weirdly becomes about someone resisting authority and resisting control through falling in love, basically. And it's kind of like what Kat was just saying. It's like she has no real identity of her own. What, like, whether the film really developed and structured her character from the beginning or not, she has no real personality. She just sort of does what Lazar wants her to do and what her family wants her to do. But it's like by Miklash kidnapping her and her falling in love with him, she becomes her own person. And even though a lot of sort of tragic and kind of awful things happen throughout, it's so weirdly hopeful. The actress who paid her, though, Magda Vasariova, she is in another one of my favorite Czechoslovak films. It's a Slovakian film called Birds, Orphans and Fools. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's fucking incredible. Another kind of um, non-linear narrative that leads to a lot of room for maneuver and questions. Uh, and she was in this. And just going back to what Sam just said, I mean, she was somebody, she went on to become a p- politician she rang for president in 1999. She was somebody who throughout her lifetime was vocal against communism. She's very liberal, very active in politics. So it's interesting when you think about her and who she was as a person um, and somebody who's very political and you take that into the Marquetta character and this idea of resistance and birds, orphans and fools has also got like a big political sort of, subtext as well it takes on another dimension i think when through this sort of resistance and escape so it's interesting i love her though she's such a brilliant actress so we should probably say that this is it's really it's an outlaw tale i mean we've got the two warring families it's almost like a 
maybe a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing as far as these star-crossed lovers, but really her relationship with <laughs> with the son of, of Kozik is not a romance at first. You know, you talked about how she's kidnapped. She's kidnapped and she's raped, pretty much. And it's be- as revenge for Lazar having Mikolash beaten up, and Mikolash is the son of Kozik. So it's this whole thing of those clans fighting these two brigand clans fighting and then eventually you know lazar is still on the outs and rejects marquetta as the movie goes along and she originally was promised to the nunnery and there's this whole thing about how he has to pay the nunnery to take her and doesn't have enough money so they reject her and then eventually she comes back and they reject her again or she rejects them which i think is one of the most powerful things so it's this these outlaws fighting against the man quote-unquote which is the captain who is a representative of the king and also fighting against kind of against saxony which is for lack of a, a better description it's basically germany so it's these outlaws who are fighting against authority. So it's like a it's a year before Bonnie and Clyde, but already we have this outlaw tale. I didn't even realize it was a year before Bonnie and Clyde, and it's it's funny that you des- <laughs> that you describe them as in, even in the same sentence because in my head they're in such totally different universes. Even though I guess they do have this sort of overarching theme, but in the weirdest most disparate way that you could possibly explore that theme it also reminds me of bergman's virgin spring i have like i have like a bit of a bit of a kind of affection for i don't know what i'd call sublime brutal landscape films where do you know what i mean that just everything's sublime but everything's very dangerous but also very beautiful and films like yeah, Andre Rublev comes into that, which is very similar. No one's allowed to laugh in Andre Rublev. Like if you <laughs> get drunk and sing a little song, then they the men take you away. Um, <laughs> and it's like Witch Hammer, um, the Slovakian film Dragons Return, uh, Valley of the Beasts, obviously as well. Vasil's other film, and another Czech film, the uh, Late August at the Hotel Ozone, which is a dystopian futuristic film but it's again very primal it's like this very primal kind of sense of the sublime saragossa manuscript shuaski's the devil there's there was all that going on in eastern europe at the time lots of rebels lots of anarchists in these sort of brutal landscapes but virgin spring especially just to go to what mike said about the outlaws where you've got the pack of outlaws in that um and i hadn't thought about it until you just said it mike but that's there's a few scenes in marquetta that look like virgin spring like the camps with the little houses and you've got the christianity and paganism in that as well but i think it's the outlaw thing i think that connects it the most you've got these bands of men marauding across the countryside raping young virgins and all that stuff yeah the idea of christianity runs throughout so much of this movie i mean we talked about the the nunnery, you know, so obviously there's that. But then there's a character, uh, this monk named Bernard, who is also throughout a lot of this film. And I think he speaks, does he speak with the same voice of the narrator? Who in the narrator reminds me of like a voice of God narrator who comes in just a few times. No, he's not the same guy, but 
can I just say he's and we've talked about him before, Mike. He's played by Vladimir Menzik, which is he's, he's one of my favourite Czech actors. He did loads of work with Aldrich Lipsky. Um, he's in the Cremator because I have to bring that up. He's that bloke who keeps turning up with his hysterical wife. Yeah, go on the broomstick. <laughs> so um, and and I love him as Bernard, but that. That line actually came from a different book that seems for the history of Czech nation. I'm not going to attempt at all the Czechoslovakian pronunciation on that. But he's wonderful. But I think the narrator is a slightly different person. Because they're also having a conversation later on. So I guess that makes more sense. Because at one point it feels like God is talking directly to Bernard and he's answering but then, I mean, this whole movie, so much of the dialogue is done post-sync, so it doesn't necessarily match up with everybody's mouths 100%. We've talked about this effect in movies before, especially when we talk about uh, Italian films, that it adds to the kind of dreamlike quality of the movie that these are not necessarily the voices coming out of their mouths. Like, if you read the, you know, who who these actors are, a lot of times you have two or the characters have two names associated with them the person that played them and then the person that voiced them so a lot of these characters you're just like yeah something's not 100 percent right with the way that they're speaking but i can't really tell and then also when you have somebody stupid like me who can't even tell the first time around that they're speaking german <laughs> versus czech <laughs> yeah i do think though that voice of god thinks when he turns up and he's like a drunk getting drunk and stuff and you think men seek he normally plays these sort of comedic roles or he was hugely prolific so um not always but i know him from his czech comedies and so you expect him to be a bit more i expected him to be a bit of a jester character but that voice of god thing's interesting because when he arrives he, he then kind of moves the narrative on because everything he says sort of explains something that's happening so he does serve the role of a of a narrator in in some sense and of course he gets the last word as well at the end but i think he's wonderful i just think he's such a wonderful actor i love it when he turns up in things i get really excited i mean it's also such a unusual narrative device the way that it's used in this film and the way that it's used in the book where the narrator kind of is I don't want to say snarky, but a little bit like he really judge. I, I think he makes it clear just how you, you get the sense that neither Kozik or Lazar are given any kind of pass. It's not sort of one side is preferable to the other. It's the narrator gives you this idea that they're kind of both wrong. And so thus setting up, that sort of hopeful ending that we talked about where Marquetta is sort of left on her own, but it just, it, it's almost the first time I saw it. I found the narration combined with what you were just talking about, the sort of weird dubbing and voiceovers to be so disorienting. It's like, if it's not confusing enough to figure out who these people are, they're speaking with different voices. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think that's deliberate, though? Because oh, yeah. everything about yeah, everything about it is is like it just brings you into this strange universe. Like the soundtrack, the fucking soundtrack. 
everything seems so deliberate and I definitely have watched as I'm sure you both have, I definitely have watched kind of more experimental films in the past that have this feeling of working things out as they go along and maybe happy accidents occurring and improvisation. But here everything seems so intentional. And so it's like the more you watch the film, your brain is sort of trying to absorb the experience of the film, which is very overwhelming visually, but you're also kind of, at least for me, trying to work out why he made these decisions and what he sort of meant by them. And yeah, it's there, there's too much (laughs) to stay on topic. As far as the voices go, we have a lot of scenes where we are getting recollections or people talking and then other things happening underneath it. So it's like voiceovers by our own characters, especially when uh, Kozik goes and attacks the captain and we have, well, that's like so much of that is, is a POV shot. And we have a lot of very deliberate uses of POV shots. That in particular is really fascinating to me to watch him go in and attack the captain. And then we get these like flashbacks to it as we go along. And then we'll even get, the other perspective of him attacking the captain. So it's just like, this is really, I mean, yeah, it's very, very deliberate as far as when we're using narration within the story, when we're using POV shots uh, it and just that kind of stuff. Like I would, this is one of those movies where I'd almost like to chart out as far as when there are voiceovers, who's saying things, when there are POV shots, whose POV are we getting? So yeah, it's 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 a really a tour de force as far as just filmic tools to tell a story. It's incredible. Can we talk about uh, Zdenek Lishka's score? Because I just love a Gregorian chant. Me too. Oh. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Conan would listen to this and be like, "Wow, that's a really good score." <laughs> it's so epic and disorientating, though. And I think they based it on actual medieval things, but there's something very sinister about it, which which I love. Basically, stick a Gregorian chant in anything, and I will love it. So yeah, I'm probably not a good good judge, really. <laughs> but no, it is a, it is an epic score, um, and obviously uh, Liska was massive in Czech film, scored a lot of it, including the Cremator, which I'm always going to bring up. <laughs> And I love his score for that as well, but it's totally different. I think this one is probably one of my favourites that I've heard. Oh, and he does Birds, Orphans and Fools as well. And the, and the, again, very, very different, very uh, totally different soundtrack for that. Which, it's funny, and I don't mean to go on a tangent here, but I feel like with American composers, especially film composers, you get these people like Howard Shore who do these really, really epic scores, but they all kind of sound the same. Or at least they, they're so similar that as soon as you hear them, you go, oh, okay, well, this is obviously this particular composer. But with this, like this compared to The Cremator, unless you know they're the same person it's just the range is incredible like i wish we had more film scores like this it's one of my absolute favorites but yeah gregorian chant i'm gregorian chant over top of some sort of brutalist landscape i'm so <laughs> 
he does. He really gets into the actual mood of the film, like well, Craig Armstrong, another composer. You know, it's Craig Armstrong, and it's very epic. And I think with Lischke, he really like gets the mood of the film. Like the Cremator's all about classical music, and it's obviously a device used in the plot for that. That you've got characters named after composers, um, and so he uses waltzes and all all this stuff. And Birds, Orphans, and Falls is like got more of a fun kind of strange avant-garde atmosphere so he does that and then there's marquetta which is really dark really dissonant gregorian chanting it's like everyone sounds like they're in pain it's just incredible you couldn't like every single film he just really takes the essence of that and it would be interesting to see how marquetta would work without that score because i don't think it could i think that would be a really disorienting experience i don't i i actually think you're right i think the the way that he kind of captures and enhances their emotional responses especially hers it would i don't i don't think the film would fail but i don't think you would be quite as in its grip without that score well yeah and you talked about the brutalist landscape i mean we haven't mentioned that all of this seems to take place in winter and listening to the um, extras that are on the, the criterion disc, they said they shot for, what was it like 500 days or something? And I think so- two years, it was seven years in the making, I think and two years just on shooting and they were on location the entire time, like living in shacks out on the, I mean, it's, it's incredible when you think about it. Can you imagine any actors going and doing that today? Like, can you live in this mud for, you know, the next 500 days and, you know, the snow and it just wouldn't happen, would it? They wouldn't even get insurance. No. Well, and if you think about like, like Alexandra, who I don't think we've mentioned yet, Alexandra spends the majority of her screen time in short sleeves, (laughs) just out in the snow, not acting, acting like she's, and it's makes it, I think, amazing and believable, but you really get the sense that these characters live this really hardened lifestyle where they're dependent on the landscape. And in a way they're sort of part of it. And I don't think you would get that feeling without them being there for so long but yeah no one would do that today there would be a can lot can you of- imagine <laughs> nobody <laughs> people would be having a nervous breakdown especially for that amount of time you just think it's incredible that artists would would allow the director to put them through that but all the better for the film because it is you do really feel that they're living this really barbaric primal existence. Alexandra, I fucking love. She's like Princess Mononoke. I know. She's the wild woman of Borneo. She's just like, <laughs> she's amazing. And doesn't take any shit from her brothers. And it's, I, I sort of love the way. So the first time I saw this, I felt like it was. I don't want to say misogynistic, but it sort of deceptively sets up this 
universe where it seems like the men are in charge and the women are sort of expected to follow along. But the more you watch the film, and I think the more times you watch the film, you realize that that's not really the case at all, especially with Alexandra, who just does whatever the fuck she wants. Oh, she's so brilliant. She's just so with his spouse and, you know, she goes and fucks who she wants. She just, you know, she's like, you can imagine her, you know, like Princess Mononoke sort of when she gets chased into the forest. You just think, you know, she's just like a warrior. And I totally agree, Sam. It is like set up, I guess, historically to reflect that period. But the women do have i mean a lot of the guys are very ego based and they're kind of flailing around oh he just dissed me let's go and have a fight i'm gonna throw (laughs) a rock at his head and they're all busy that and in the background the women are kind of watching and waiting and they're doing their own thing biding um yeah biding their time The men are just all like, oh, you know, he said this, I'm I'm going to go out and I'm going to impale this man. It's all like that. Very loads of male ego and people just responding to situations because they feel slighted or somebody didn't (laughs) capture so-and-so. And and a lot of people getting hit with rocks. (laughs) So many people getting hit with rocks. (laughs) Just grab this massive rock and I'm just going to smash someone's head in. Oh, it's, it's, it's so good. <laughs> we were talking about the length of time that it took to, to do this. And the Father Bernard character, I don't know if you guys saw this on the extras, that no one would sit with him when they would have lunch because he stank so much. Vladimir, my poor Vladimir. I haven't got, some of us can't afford the criterion dish. We have to oh my. pay like a whole mortgage to import the fucking thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you then, I'll tell you that the reason why that lamb sticks around him, they couldn't get the lamb to to stay near him because Father Bernard or, or Bernard the monk has this unnatural relationship with this lamb. Like you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like Daisy from Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex, but we're afraid to ask. It was the greatest lay I ever had. They couldn't get the sheep to stay near him until they... <laughs> They used the <laughs> semen of a ram and smeared it on his robe. And they said that he stank so bad because everyone would stay oh. in their clothes throughout this. And yeah, that was Covered why. ram semen. <laughs> Sorry. But um, I, was saying, I was saying you'd never get an actor to go out <laughs> in the snow, but. You know, that's really... He took one for the team. Can Being covered see? in lamb semen is not in my contract. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Vladimir. The, oh, God, that was the stank to high heaven. I wonder whose job it was to milk the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> Trust you to think of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tom Green wasn't around yet. I'm so. just here thinking... And Sam's thinking, I wonder he milked the ram. And we promised we would be on our best behavior. (laughs) It's that Black Candles episode all over again now. You can't bring up bestiality and expect me to behave myself. I've been deliberately trying not to talk about the incest. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, we have to talk about the incest. I don't remember that being in the book. 
That was not in the book. Okay. You and I were talking last night that the cat, the character of one armed Adam, who is a major character in the film, he is the brother of Mikolos and also the brother of Alexandra because those three are kin. He's not in there at all, even though he is such a major part of the movie. I think he's a brilliant character, and I think it really, and we've talked about this a little bit, but this whole sort of theme of comparing and contrasting sort of quote-unquote unnatural relationships, it takes on such a stronger tone in the film, and I don't think it would be the same without him. But the scene where he gets his arm chopped off is so intense. <laughs> it's just... There are so many fucked up relationships in this film. Like even Marquetta's with uh, Mikolash is this weird Stockholm syndrome after a brutal rape and Bernard with his farm animals and, you know, and then Alexandra and Adam. Um, And I love that Adam character because there's a sort of weird perversity about him. He watches. That one arm and just, yeah, so, so good. But he spends, I think, the thing that the first time I saw this, I was kind of creeped out by him because I, this could just be my impression, but it seems like he has less dialogue than the other sort of central characters like Miklos and Alexandra. But he's often, when Alexandra is in a scene, he is often also in frame a lot of the time, just sort of staring at her. No, he is. He's, he's a little creeper. So He's a little creeper, but I, I love that because, yeah. you know, it just gives it another sinister kind of... Because not only are these people threatened by outsiders, there's all this weird politics going on on the inside as well. And he's just so creepy. He always seems to be just there looking and his sister in a in an ungodly way. It's those pagans, man. We have to talk about that dream sequence that she has about Christian. And it took me a long time to figure out that, that what was that's what was going on was her imagining having sex with Christian and this whole thing with this tree. And you talked about how she's kind of a a witchy character and this whole thing with her and the tree. And there's a snake that's in the tree. So we're kind of going back to the garden of Eden with that. And then I noticed that when Adam, before he gets his arm cut off, they're like, Oh, he was bit by a snake and the venom is going to you know kill him or whatever. So we have to cut off his arm. So I'm like this whole association between Having sex with Alexandra and the snake is really interesting. It's amazing. See, another thing I love, you know, snakes, witchcraft, Garden of Eden, just just bring it on. So many little weird little religious uh, levels in this, especially the aspects of paganism are, are brilliant. Yeah, and it does this really amazing thing, to your point, mentioning Bergman earlier, that he also does, where it draws these kinds of parallels between paganism and early Christianity, and initially kind of presents them as being at odds with each other, but throughout the course of the film sort of shows that they're from the same root of the same tree, basically. And I, I don't think it does that better anywhere than with that snake sequence. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, 
Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm trying to think of her name, but the uh, in Virgin Spring, Alexandra reminds me of oh, what's her name? The the pagan girl in that um, in in Gary, the one who prays to the Norse gods, and she's pregnant because she's gone and sat with someone, and they don't know who the father is, and she's kind of really primal. It kind of goes into that in this but then in marketo you've got naked tree hugging and snakes you know while people are arriving around having sex that makes tree hugging though is <laughs> i mean amazing. well yeah when we phrase it that way it sounds more ridiculous than it is but it's but the- it's not it's so poetic and powerful to go to the female power uh female power that we just talked about and um, yeah, it's just so it's just incredible and beautiful and poetic and just, you know, wild. It looks like she's bleeding a bird while that's going on. She's that's doing funny. a love spouse, Mike. You know, that's... Okay. You know. <laughs> well, because birds are such a part of this. I mean, even to the, the point of them being on the poster, there's like a falcon on the poster. And it's between, like, the birds and the dogs are just all over this movie. Those wild dogs, or maybe they're supposed to be wolves, are some of those shots. The shots of just that stark white of the snow and the black of the trees and the black of the dogs is just gorgeous. Probably my single favorite part is in the sort of voiceover narration, they tell that fairy tale about... (gasps) The wolves. Yes. He grew up with the wolves. Oh, it's just, I love that. supposed to be Miklos's, what, great-grandfather, I think, the person that they're telling the story about. Because the first time I saw it, I thought they were talking about Miklos and was confused. But it just, it's so, it's one of those things where the first time you watch it, it's so unexpected. Like, this fairy tale just sort of comes from out of left field, but it's so perfect and just so gorgeous. I know I keep saying that. I'll find different adjectives, I swear. <laughs> last time we, last time I came on, I said everything was cra- incredible. <laughs> and I'm like, it's incredible, it's gorgeous. It's am- but, but it is one of those films that you respond to it on a completely emotional level. You know, not not on a, a logical level. Because then when you start trying to figure everything out and you're like, what the fuck, who, who was that? Why were the... It's all about the emotions. And, like, in that way, it's a real experience. And I think at the time, historical epics, which are, like, fucking huge in Czechoslovakian cinema, so many historical epics, they hadn't been filmed like that before. And uh, Vlasil wanted to make, he said he was sick of like historical films where people just look like they're in period costume. He wanted to make something with real people that could have been from our time, uh, who were really there, who were really in that place, not just this period drama. And I I think that's why it becomes such an uh, emotionally rich piece, because he's he's trying to show a kind of realism, you know, where they wouldn't have just stood around having long conversations. They were in the middle of battle all the time. So, you know, explaining every little thing. So it makes it kind of realistic in one sense and surreal in the other, if that makes sense. But 
I think that's why the only way you can as- as respond to this film is like, oh, it's so gorgeous. It's so amazing. You know, it's just one of those films. Before we move on from the whole time period thing, I, it, I just wanted to say it reminds me of this thing that Fassbender also does where he seems to be making a sort of historical period piece, but he really doesn't care that much about historical detail in the same way that I think Vassal does here, where it's like he wants to get at this emotional truth. So he borrows the elements that work poetically, but it leaves you with, like Kat, you were just saying, it leaves you with this sort of otherworldly feeling. Like, it's surreal and kind of disorienting, but I think so much more poetic than some of those more traditional kind of costume drama type historical epics. No, it is an emotional truth. Like, real life isn't formal and structured, is it? And so I think he does that with this. It is an emotional truth that you get from the narrative. And I think that's what we respond to and why we care so much about the characters. One of the most poetic moments for me is when we have the score working with the visuals and we have that repeated shot of the nuns all turning towards the camera and we get that like three times in a row that goes with uh, a refrain in the music. That is just so beautiful. The use of the nuns in this movie and that space is gorgeous and they look so sinister. So often those nuns look so sinister, especially our main nun, the only one who's in black. She just seems like she is more representative of evil than of goodness. Yeah, which I found to be really unsettling and confusing the first time I watched this, because I think at first you kind of can't tell if it's Marquetta's decision that she wants to go off and live this sort of secluded life away from all of these kind of squabbling, rock-throwing men, or if it's something that's being forced on her. But as soon as you meet those nuns, it quickly becomes clear how how sort of mercenary they are. And I think it right away kind of establishes this kind of almost contempt for religion that goes through throughout the film but it's like you can't come in because you haven't got enough money which is you know there's supposed to be a religious order that provides sanctuary and training for nuns and it's like you've got to pay to get in like what the fuck is that about i mean that's also a lot of the time the reality of the situation in medieval european convents was they took women from better families because those families would sort of make an endowment basically, which I think is not always the way people think of medieval Christianity. I mean, you know, you learn how much wealth the church had, but it was such an integral part of the church structure in a way that I think modern Christians sort of try to gloss over. No, you know, no offense to anyone who may be listening to this, but I, I think Vassil really. Uh, well, he has this <laughs> this contempt for religion in the Devil's yeah. Trap, this, and then Valley of the Bees, which I also love so much, slightly more formal. 
lot of contempt for religion in Valley of the Bees as well. The same kind of juxtaposition between that paganism and uh, the constructs of the church. And the church is seen as oppressive because uh, that Valley of the Bees is like about a Templar knight who goes all wild and pagan. Yeah, there's definitely that theme in these three films. Back to my much earlier point about how you could see it as a political protest film. I think in a way, subtly criticizing the church is sort of a safe way to criticize authority. Yeah, especially in a communist-ruled country at the time. So Valley of the Bees I have not seen yet, though I'm dying to. (gasps) You will love it. It's such a Sam film. It is just, I won't spoil the plot. It is more coherent than Marquetta, and it's based on a, a guy, uh, just one guy. So it's got more of a main protagonist, but same sort of themes as Marquetta, slightly less brutal. But, oh, my God, it's incredible. I wouldn't want to choose between the two. I know Marquetta was, like, voted the most important and best Czechoslovak film of all time. I'd put Valley of the Bees next to it. I love it just as much is Marquetta. It's Definitely. just, oh. I'm sure I will love it, but it's, there's just moments in it where you're just doing the Homer Simpson face. <laughs> <laughs> Another film of his that I know people don't rate as highly, but that I really love is called Adelheid. It has sort of, so it takes place during World War II, and it has this sort of similar kind of forbidden love story at its center where this woman is taking care of an enemy soldier. But it's not that it's critical of the church, but I think it's really critical of authority in a similar way because it sort of looks at the military structure as being maybe not openly corrupt, but misguided and making poor decisions and sort of not taking care of the people in its system in the same way that Marquetta does. And I just love how he kind of works with that theme. You're just giving me an essay idea then. Damn you. That's the best. (laughs) Devil's Trap also has, not the forbidden love themes, but this kind of somebody going against authority got a bit of a witch hunting mild witch hunting theme in it so much more formal than the two later ones though so much more formal and it's a good film but i i don't enjoy it as much as the later two but there's definitely that kind of disdain for authority and that and again it's the church again and this scientist in that and this kind of weird clash between modernity and the old ways as well. Lots of so there's definitely something going on. It go like Otto Vavra when he made Witch Hammer, which wasn't he wasn't considered a political filmmaker, but Witch Hammer was considered very political. And it's the same thing like Sam said, this idea of using uh, religion as a metaphor, like Witch Hammer's been uh, compared to the show trials they had in the 50s. Oh, definitely. Even though he wasn't, Vavra wasn't a political filmmaker, you can see it in that as well. People kind of struggling against this oppressive sort of authority. I think that's why I like the outlaws, because even though they're just as mercenary, they're kind of outsider anarchists sort of fighting to keep their identity in a in a world that's changing so i was kind of on their side even though they're sort of mercenary rapists going back to that 
nunnery scene real quick. I wanted to ask about the little kid who comes in. I've read that that's one of uh, Kozik's uh, grandchildren or something, but uh, and actually grandson, but that doesn't look like a boy to me. Is that supposed to be a young boy that comes in? I don't know. I don't know either, and I kind of assumed that sort of maybe androgyny was just another disorienting element that was there to make everything seem a little more otherworldly. It almost felt like it was a young Marquetta coming in and kind of being like her younger self and being like, come on, you don't need this. Yeah. She is, well, he is like a, a young Marquetta. I think I agree with Sam. I think it's just there again as one of these ambiguous elements. It makes it feel very, that makes that sequence feel very dreamlike. Well, that and then also the prayers that are going over the battle scenes. And, you know, again, it's not necessarily voiceover in that case, but the use of the prayers being juxtaposed against those battles and seeing what's happening with Kozik and Mikulash and the captain and all that is really pretty spectacular. I'm, we, we've been talking about religion a lot, but we haven't even mentioned that we actually get to see Lazar crucified in this film. And I was very surprised when he comes back because I thought that would have been the end of Lazar to see him hanging from his hands on the back of a door, but that he keeps showing up. I was like, oh, okay, this guy, they're, they're not putting him down Lazar's yet. Lazar's such a miserable coward, though, he, I think. He's horrid. <laughs> and he it enrages me Every time, and I know that this is intentional, but it enrages me every time at the end of the film when she comes back and he gives her shit and is and is basically her a poor like she's a tainted woman. It's like you sold her out to try and save yourself, you horrible little man. Well, and he he said something to her like, you know, you could have come back before now, but you didn't. And her response, which I think shows her range of growth in the film, her response is something like, you could have sent someone to rescue me by now, and you didn't. And he's like, oh, so did you come back just to be critical? And it's like, (laughs) come on. Your favorite child you she gets kidnapped and you just wash your hands of her like yeah oh. he's awful he's just such a miserable little coward i i really my not a lot of the characters have got redeemable qualities but i did like mikolash even I though he loved mikolash i also i love he could actor. kidnap me <laughs> Totally. Oh, so I think maybe we need to to clarify that. <laughs> Our sort of joke running list of favorite movie psychopaths. I don't I don't know that he would totally be on the psychopath list, but even though his character is does awful things, I love him. Oh, I love him too. He would go on the list. I mean, no, he's not a psychopath. He's just a product of his time, I think. Yeah. It's just hard. Um, so he doesn't really go in with the Terrence. Stat- Sam and I have this ongoing list, which is quite public, of psychopaths so we'd be happily, <laughs> happily kidnapped by. Um, and I ask people to ask suggestions. And I'll tell you what, I've never had such a busy thread on Facebook. Everyone wants to be kidnapped. <laughs> Everybody wants to stamp by Terrence Stamp. But Sam had like oh, 25 Oh, God, add me to the people. list. Like, <laughs> like... No, but, 
But Mikolash, I think, is allowed to much, much the way that Marquetta is sort of through disobeying her father by falling in love with him. He also sort of goes against his own kind of outlaw family by falling in love with her and becomes a different person. And I, I don't know. So the actor... He's very Byronic. He's Byronic, isn't he? He's got that Byronic hero kind of thing. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. As soon as he tells them, no, don't put the nail shoes on her, then it's like, okay, yeah, he's going right against his father's wishes. You see little moments between them. Like when Lazar... So when... In one of the early scenes, when he goes to... Lazar's house and Lazar has him beaten, which sort of sets all these plot events in motion. There's this gorgeous scene where Marquetta comes down and looks at him and wants to help him. And you see this look on her face like, girl, I know those hormones going through your brain right now. (laughs) (laughs) And, And her father won't let her help him. And so Mikolash kind of sort of runs off and there's this quick shot of her standing in a pool of his blood that I love so much. It's one of my absolute favorite things in the whole film, but I don't think like, you know, we've talked about how great Marquetta is as a character, how amazing the actress is, but I likewise, I don't think this would be the film that it is without Frantisek Veliki, who is the actor who plays Miklash, who was in a bunch of Czech films, was also in Miklos Yangsho films, and just doesn't have much dialogue, but has such an incredible on-screen presence that it's it's like this magnetic force every time you see him. Interesting you brought up Yangsho, Sam, because there are some parallels to Yangsho's work. Like in the <laughs> The weird, brutal landscapes, and, well, Lancho's uh, Yancho's heroes are always of good quality, as we've discussed many times. <laughs> <laughs> but they always have that kind of edgy, kind of dangerous thing. And there's that, although Yancho's earlier films are more surreal, there's definitely that kind of connection to that as well. Yeah, I don't think. Lots of naked horseback riding, though. There was none in this. But there were horses falling over and stuff. Well, like that beautiful scene that didn't really, I guess, strike me. The f- So I've probably, like you, I've probably seen this five or six times now, which it's almost three hours. Otherwise, I probably would have seen it more times. But what struck me the watching this the most recent time is that sequence, which does kind of feel like it could come from a Yangshou film, where there's that horse kind of sinking in the swamp, mm. like the never-ending story. <laughs> oh my god, it's so <laughs> depressing. <laughs> it's so Yancho, though. There is definitely, and Yancho, again, was another one who looked passive systems and and that very barbaric sort of situations where you've got people just having their heads blown off at point-blank range and forbidden relationships and very similar themes in some of the films. But that horse scene is so awful, but so poetic at the same time. So the way earlier we were talking about how the score 
really works to establish these emotional responses that couldn't just come about through the script alone or the visuals alone. But I think that horse sequence is such a powerful example of how Vlasiel includes these seemingly unrelated sequences like shots of birds, shots of the wolves running in the snow, and this scene of the horse thrashing about in this swamp that are just so emotionally impactful, but in such a weirdly experimental way that it just, I don't it's really hard for me to talk about this film without just saying that everything's perfect. <laughs> it is perfect, though. It is. I mean, I know we talk a lot about this sort of cinema on our own podcast, you know, very emotional sort of cinema that's like a pure cinema in a way that you just you just react to. It's so rare in the formal medieval drama, which I'm a massive fan of. I love a good period piece. But it it kind of takes that and that genre and subverts it completely on its head and redesigns it and makes it into something completely different, something which is why it shook me so much when I first saw it, because it just defied any convention or any idea of an Eastern European period drama that I had. Yeah, no, and I think the comparison you made earlier to Zhuavsky's The Devil is totally in the same vein, and even Borovchik's Blanche and some of the Young Show films where it just, like, takes what should be a conventional genre and makes it into something so different and so political and so, like, emotionally agonizing. <laughs> In the best way, in my favourite way. Do either of you guys know anything about these royal scenes? I don't recall those in the book. Sam, did you happen upon those things? Because, like, King Wenceslas was actually supposed to be yeah, in there. Yeah, I don't think they were ever shot. So I said earlier it took seven years. I'm, talk- it was, I'm talking crap because it ended in 1967. It was five years, two years shooting. Huge, like exceeded its budget. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. One of those kind of things, you know, um, you know, more snow, more wolves, more rocks, you know. Um, <laughs> and so they had these royal scenes that I don't think were ever shot. Think so. Which would explain more the relationships between these warring people. But it also had a thing in that Alexandra would commit suicide, which was totally then not in the plot at all yeah which is a a shame although it might have been like four hours long then so it would make it it would make it so different i mean so the what i think the book does a really good job of is the narrator kind of quickly and, and as i said before very snarkily describes the political situation and sort of just, so the king does have a bigger role in the book, and the the narrator kind of makes Lazar seem cowardly from the get-go because he describes Lazar's relationship with the king where sort of he's a brown noser but doesn't get involved and basically is just kind of trying to keep his like comfortable family existence, whereas it, it sort of seems like Kozik is against the king. So it, it sets that up, but I really, 
was annoyed by the fact that in the book, at the very end, Alexandra kills herself after having Christian's child, and Marquetta is stuck raising both children, which I think is supposed to be sort of like kind of a mythic thing where she's, you know, uniting these two different bloodlines, but I prefer the the film ending by far. Yeah, she it would have been shot and um yeah, that, that part would have been shot which explains Alexandra's absence at yeah. the end of the film. And like you said, it does give this kind of mythic thing. I like that they leave it ambiguous, though, but I'd be interested to read a script of what those scenes were. Yeah, but I'd like to think that Alexandra is somewhere off running with the wolves, like Princess Yeah, she's okay. like, you know, fur sort of thing on, feathers in her hair, <laughs> war paint blood. on. Yes, her blood war paint. <laughs> <laughs> Kid following her with a little bow and arrow, you know, it's a little feral child. <laughs> That's how it should be. They did make a big point to say what her son's name is, which was Vaklav, which apparently translates sometimes in English as Wenceslas. So they're both origins of Wenceslav. So I don't know if that was some sort of like a nod to those scenes. But yeah, and then that Alexandra isn't there and they say that she raised her child. It's like they just left it kind of, you know, um, ambiguous but that's that's why she's she's not there if you go by the original story and the original shooting script i like it how it ended up ended up i know it wasn't the director's vision had to compromise on that but you know come on it's like three hours long <laughs> it's like yeah let him keep shooting all these scenes more extras more you know it was for its time such an epic thing five years two years of you know just absolutely insane when you think about it. And one thing that was weird was in those extras on the Criterion disc, there were two people that mentioned that the film was banned. And I was like, I went and I looked and I don't think this movie was banned or if it was, it was years later because this, as you guys were saying, this is one of the top rated Czech films that became number one on all of these lists of the best Czech films of all time by Czech critics. What I found was that Vlasil was blacklisted around after Edelheid, but not the movie itself. No, it just kind of fell out of favor. It just kind of drifted out and nobody realized the significance of it. You know, not until the late 90s. And then all of a sudden they kind of discover Marketa Lazarova again. And they're like, this is the best Czech film Ever. It was I don't think it was ever banned. It was just did its theatrical run, did quite well, people liked it, but then it kind of just just drifted out and you know, wasn't shown anywhere. Yeah, and I'm glad that they found it before he ended up passing away, that, that he kinda got his moment in the sun of like you made the best film ever and they're like so rather than it being, you know, just this uh he dies ignominious uh, after doing a bunch of TV work in the 80s. No, because it is his masterpiece. This and Valley of the Bees are just incredible, subversive films for their time. And it's great that he was finally recognized for that, although it took like 20 years. There's a lot of that in Czech cinema where people were blacklisted or moved abroad and went to Germany and kind of, you know, really artistic directors 
you should have been, you know, the masters and they were just sort of, you know, sent off and forgotten about. And it's only been post-communism. And even just recently, because how long did we have to wait before you could actually even see this film in the West? It wasn't till, you know, 2012, 2013, maybe. Only very recently that you could see it. And I think that's the, the biggest... Uh, thing about Trek cinema is so much is still, we talked about this on the Fifth Horseman is Fear so much is still unavailable or so hard to find you you know like Mike's uh, trudging around Russian torrent sites <laughs> I mean Sam were like that with our Yan show thing that we did we oh were watching God. like unsubtitled Yan show films and Yan shows one of them directors is just <laughs> saying on check uh, streaming sites just because we needed to see it even though we didn't know what the hell was going on it's like why is that guy you okay. know on, to be fair yeah. to be fair even if we had subtitles we still wouldn't know what the hell no. was. <laughs> but, I, but it, were, it is it is like that it becomes i think once you get bitten by the bug it becomes like this this mania quest <laughs> But it's so it makes me crazy though that yes, to your point, it's probably only been a couple of years that this film was really readily available, but not to disparage Tarkovsky in any way, but it seems like for decades now, film fans, particularly people who like art house films, talk about Tarkovsky like he's the greatest thing on the planet, but, like, what about all these other Central and Eastern European directors? Like, I'm sorry, but I think Marquetta is a better film, or at least as good of a film as Andrei Rublev, but it's like people still haven't seen it. We're so Andrei Rublev. When was, when was that made? There's so many similarities in a way. So many similarities, and yet Entree's kind of really celebrated by the art house crowd. And then, you you know, you have these Czech films that are, are all but ignored, apart from a few sort of people that have, have got this, bitten by this bug to kind of champion. And there are some great people championing uh, Czech and Slovak films. But sometimes it's an uphill battle to even get people to... Engage and listen to what you're saying. It's kind of the old Czech film, and they just, you know, it's it's kind of like that, which is which is awful. It enrages me too, because it's like you can get these films now, watch them, you know, watch all of it, because it's a whole, you know, this amazing world out there to be discovered, and people should be. It's only slowly. I think now we're getting festivals like uh, Ben Buckingham, who was on Fifth Horseman's doing stuff in Melbourne. And there's been stuff in Belgium. They did like a big Hertz screen in there. Uri Hertz, another director who's been completely ignored uh, for years and years. Uh, Only now people are kind of just starting to to get there. But it's... It's outrageous. It is. Before all the uh, Tarkovsky heads start uh, tweeting at me, Andrei Rublev was uh, 1966, and but it wasn't released in the U.S. until right, 73. Right, uh, but Marquetta would have been first if it hadn't taken him so long to finish it. Yeah, Marquetta was already being, I mean, it was being shot then when that was released, and it had already been in pre-production for three years before that. Well, there's that whole thing about Valley of the Bees came out after, but it was actually shot before and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think 
both of those came out the, the exact same year. And Valley of the Bees, again, another masterpiece, but not quite as ambiguous and not quite as difficult. Um, probably a lot easier to shoot. But it is it is set in that same universe as Marquetta. So next week we are continuing September 2018, but we're going in a much lighter direction. I mean, between Dita Saxova, Fifth Horseman is Fear, and Marquetta Lazarova, we have really gone to some heavy places. Next week we were talking about who would kill Jesse. So much lighter, a remarkable film nonetheless. So be sure to come on back and uh, enjoy that one. And that one you could actually see uh, relatively easily, uh, at least it used to be. I don't know if that Fasix disc is uh, out of print now or not, but uh, hopefully there's no brothel scenes or anything that were cut out of that I one. I love yeah. the Who Wants to Kill Jesse. So much fun, that film. So until we're back next week with that, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Sam. You two are dynamos on your own and truly a powerhouse when you work together. What's been the latest with you guys? Well, we did a William Castle commentary for Mr. Sardonicus, which will be out in October. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, we had so much fun recording it. It was just so much fun. Um, And we've got other castle stuff coming up that we can't talk about. But we have got a podcast as well where we did some of his later films, which because we haven't done a Daughters of Darkness for so long. And that was just so good. We had so many laughs on it. (laughs) Sam going on about the fighting styles of Joan Crawford and Barbara (laughs) Stanwyck. (laughs) So much, so much fun really i can't wait for the castle box set as well because i put so in, indicator put so much into it gonna be f- like finally the kind of release his films deserve i mean he's been so ghettoized i think castle for years and just to see you know and they did the same with the hammer films but just to see so much care just put into that and you know they were looking at different gimmicks for the set and all this stuff really just really looking into what they could do with it to to make it the the definitive castle set so excited and of course then there's another one uh coming i think i don't know maybe next year really next year i'm not sure you guys are costing me so much money it's not even funny i just got my copy of images on blu-ray and then i ordered M and Daughters of Darkness, the books that you have written. So Sam's M book and Kat's Daughter of Darkness book. Last time I came on, I said at the end I had three paragraphs to go on my Daughters of Darkness book. And I listened to the episode the day I finally finished it. And I thought it's taken me three fucking weeks to write three paragraphs. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm going to go and finish it now. No, no. That that didn't happen. I'm so glad that's there. And so Sam, because, you know, every time I'm like, I'm finishing my Daughters of Darkness book. Finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> like for two years. <laughs> it's like Marquette Lazarova of um, monographs. <laughs> We've got some incredible stuff coming up next year. But, yeah, can't talk. At least my money's going to a good cause. And there's also guarantees uh at least two episodes of the projection booth next year when i have you both on to talk about your monographs and uh, to talk about those movies the only thing i have on my google calendar for 2019 is projection booth episodes 
Uh, yeah, we need to take a page out of his book and maybe schedule some more Daughters of Darkness episodes. I know, because we love doing that. We absolutely love doing them, and it's just all the scheduling. Sam's obviously working loads now, and then we've been working on books and, you know, all this stuff. So we keep saying this, really want to get it more regular because, you know, all, you'll just have to have us on as joint guests. And then we'll get our shit together. Yeah, this has been fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.